Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, and the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation. From Virginia Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory, the show that explains the history behind today's headlines. I'm Brian Bella. I'm Nathan Connolly. I'm Ed Ayers. If you're new to the podcast, we're all historians, and each week, along with our colleague Joanne Freeman, we explore a different aspect of American history. If you're one of the millions of Americans who owns a smart speaker, you already know how it can make your daily life a bit easier. It does seem more convenient to have a thing in your home that can, for example, tell you the steps of a recipe, whereas otherwise, if it was online and you were cooking, um, you had to, like, wipe your hands and then type into your computer or punch in the code on your phone or clean your thumb so you could, you know, all of that took a lot of time. That's journalist Judith Shulevitz. She recently wrote about the rise of smart speakers and voice assistants in the Atlantic. In her own life, she's not only found her Google Assistant convenient, but she noticed she also started developing a kind of personal relationship to it. The voice sort of enters us more deeply and more physically, and we form relationships with voices. Evolutionarily speaking, for hundreds of thousands of years, if we heard a voice, it meant that a person was nearby. Only with the advent of the recorded voice did the voice become detached from a body, from a fellow presence. So we are evolutionarily designed to respond in this kind of physical way to voices. So it's very hard for our brains not to process a voice, even a computer voice, as a sort of appeal from another human and react to some degree emotionally and physically. So they have a greater presence So even I have found myself saying to my uh, Google Assistant, you know, I'm lonely. And uh, it will say, I wish I could give you a hug, but for now, let me play you a song. (laughs) So, you know, it's a kind of simulation of companionship, and it can kind of do the job. Today, we probably still laugh when we momentarily catch ourselves talking to our virtual assistants as if they were somehow real. But technology is currently being developed to deepen our emotional attachment to these very devices. There is a very hot new field in artificial intelligence, which deals with artificial emotional intelligence. And there's a lot of research being done on what's called emotion detection, how uh, through machine learning, computers can learn to analyze your body language, your voice intonations, and your facial expressions to figure out what you're feeling. And they can do this with a very high degree of precision so that they can they can do it as well as we can and in some cases better. And that's already happening. And pretty soon these researchers are going to be able to figure out how to create simulations in artificially intelligent devices and produce emotionally appropriate responses. So you'll have a kind of back and forth. Right now, Alexa cannot read your emotions or Google Assistant cannot read your emotions and cannot respond at the emotional level. Once they learn to be able to do that, I think it's going to be unbelievably hard not to react to them as if they were really human and form real emotional bonds. And on one hand, an emotionally intelligent voice assistant will certainly make our lives simpler, easier, and as they say in Silicon Valley, frictionless. (laughs) But it's also, well, kind of creepy. If you have a wish and your assistant can almost anticipate that wish and fulfill it immediately, wouldn't that be kind of dangerous? 
if you have an emotional bond with an entity that is actually there to sell you stuff, wouldn't that be dangerous? If you had an emotional bond with an entity that was somehow related to the government and had power of persuasion over you, wouldn't that be dangerous? So this frictionlessness, I think, has a downside. It also has an upside. I mean, it is, frankly, easier just to talk to an artificially intelligent entity than to, you know, tap on your computer. But I think the downside outweighs the upside. On today's show, we'll explore the history of technophobia in America, why some resist rather than embrace new technologies. We'll discuss how railroads sped up 19th century life in ways that seem, to some, threatening and unnatural. We'll talk about the history of Sabbath closing laws and whether bringing them back could be the solution to today's technological woes. And later, we'll learn why technology and terror are often closely linked. Think back to a time in your life when a new piece of technology started to gain some serious attention. Maybe it was the desktop computer or the iPhone. How did people around you respond to it? There was probably some skepticism at first. Questions like, why should I use this thing? Or even, is it safe? Back in the 19th century, you'd hear similar thoughts about another booming innovation, the railroad. Like all major technologies, it can evoke both fear and extravagant hope. That's David Nye. He's an historian of technology. He talked with us from his office in Denmark on a piece of technology that, ironically, is becoming more obsolete these days a landline telephone. I spoke with Nye about the railroad's influence on American society and how the public responded with hope and fear. The fear was partly just going so fast. There were people who were afraid that it would uh, cause dislocation of the muscles or the bones in the body. You would get a railway spine, some people called it. Uh, There was a fear of um, the the speed being uh, bad for the nervous system. There's at least one or two clergymen who who made these speeches about how, well, if God had meant for us to go that fast, he would have designed the world differently. The time after midnight was excessively wearisome as we enjoyed the English-style cars with eight on a seat riding backward and eight more facing these backward riders with feet interlocked and one lantern as a lamp to two such satanic English-style compartments, and the glass sliding rack rattling as the springless cars rattled and thumped over the strap-iron rails spiked to the long sleeper logs that made the track. Yet, to me and to most of us, this first night and ride in the cars was sublime as an excitement and a novelty. But of course, the extravagant hopes were that you would be able to knit a very large nation together. There was a fear in the early years of the American Republic that maybe it was going to be hard to keep such a large landmass together as one country. And then the hopes were often expressed in speeches, especially when they opened railways. They'd say, well, this will make our communication with and then you would plug in the name of wherever it was, the South or the West or, or Canada or someplace, but there would be this tighter bond. And there was this belief that the more 
rapid and regular the communication would be, uh, the better people would get along or understand one another. There would be this interchange. The same idea you get, of course, with the telephone later or the... And the World uh, Wide Web today. Yeah, the World Wide Web. Yeah, you've heard this before. It doesn't always seem to happen, but uh, <laughs> but it seems it seems reasonable when you hear it. You think, well, yeah, should be better. We can see each other more often. What were some of the longer-term concerns about railroads, which really did begin to uh, reshape the landscape and the economy and, and politics? There's two kinds of um, impacts or, or effects, you might say. The, the first is just the encounter with the thing itself. But then, as you say, there's the longer-term effects. And people who are, for example, uh, in other forms of transportation immediately see the railway as a threat. Mm-hmm. You know, they worry that uh, they're gonna, the canals will no longer be able to compete. But it's uh, it, it's more the uh, the way that the railways tend to dominate communities, uh, especially as they get out into the Middle West, and they're not going to from one well-known city to another. They're actually creating the cities. They're deciding where they're going to build a town, and the town becomes a kind of a creature, you might say, of the the railroad. That they can ruin a town by not stopping there, or they can create a new town where they want one. So that the economic might of the railway is something that starts to worry and upset people that these are monopolistic by nature. Well, speaking of trains, a lot of people were taking them to see the latest thing, all these world's fairs that were popping up all over the United States at the end of the century. You're absolutely right. In fact, I don't think a world's fair was ever held someplace where they didn't have train service. Uh, And very often they're fairly new cities which are aspiring to become great or well-known. So, for example, Omaha has a World's Fair in 1898. Omaha is, of course, the place where the the railway across the United States goes through. Mm -hmm. And uh, they imagined in 1898 that they were on the brink of becoming the next Chicago. Technology is actually, in a sense, part of why you ever have World's Fairs. They tend to feature inventions uh, and to use technologies as one of the selling points for the visitor. You know, why should you go to this? Well, we have something new. And, and one of the things, of course, is railways, which are the way to get to the fair, but they're also displaying the latest improvements. And uh, later on, there are things like the telephone is first exhibited to the public at this Philadelphia Fair of 1876, or the electric light is exhibited in a Paris uh, World's Fair, and then shortly after in the United States. Well, let's, let's pick one of those wonders. Electricity. Can you shed some light on that for us? <laughs> That's the metaphor, shedding light, yeah. Well, uh, the, the first electric lights are displayed in a um, few city centers, and then they quickly are picked up by the World's Fair's organizers because they have the obvious virtue that with good lighting, you can keep the fair open more hours and generate more customers, in a sense. You can get people to come more. But then they realize you could also have spectacular effects with electric light, that the fairground looks one way in the daytime, but when you light it up at night, it has a quite different appearance, depending on the skill of the lighting engineer. The early fairs would be kind of garish by our modern taste. You know, they'd be very strong arc lights. It would be so bright you could not really look at them. Mm-hmm. Gradually, they actually scale down the size of the bulbs. So they have a, and I'm not exaggerating, they have 30,000, 50,000 lights you know, in a single wow. 
courtyard, and they're all very small. They're just four to eight watts. And what we are familiar with is, if you think of what Times Square used to look like with a lot of individual bulbs, yep. and you could get special effects, flashing things on and off or different colors. And that was much more effective, it turned out. The public really liked that. And so that people would sometimes come back to the fairground in the evening because they wanted to see it in its new guise. What were some of the concerns? You talked about people literally being afraid that they might be injured by going too fast the first time they rode in a train. Were there equivalent concerns about electricity? Well, a fear of electricity was more of its, um, that you could get an electric shock, for example. It actually cuts both ways because there's a big interest in electrical medicine by which they meant that they literally gave you a very mild shock or they sort of plugged you in right. uh, and, and gave you a, a little juice, <laughs> recharged your battery, as they would put it. But there were, of course, people who would suddenly be killed by uh, touching the wrong wire or doing the wrong thing in a factory. And so they, they knew that electricity could be deadly. Electricity is eccentric and shocking. Its shocks will make the cars jump off from the tracks and endanger the lives of passengers. Water is a conductor, and rain will divert the electric current from the wires. Collisions and appalling accidents will inevitably occur. The rails will be electrified, and horses stepping on them will be shocked and fall. I suppose one of the ultimate signs of having made it <laughs> as a technology is becoming a verb, right? I faxed you something, I Googled. Uh, in, in the case of electricity, uh, it really hit the trifecta because there are a whole series of metaphors built around electricity. Could you share some of those with us? Oh, yeah, yeah. It actually starts before the electric light. Uh, they In the late 19th century, they would talk about a uh, if a boy and a girl or a young man and woman were uh, courting, they would talk about they were sparking. <laughs> really? They said so they were sparking? They were sparking. That was a common expression. And, and of course, that suggests that these are two bodies which are electrified. Most of my dates were kind of unplugged, David, but I never really <laughs> achieved spark well, level. <laughs> Although some of them must have worked out. but uh, Eventually. Yeah. But also there's this idea of the body being a kind of a storage battery which can be recharged huh. or can be uh-huh. run down. He needs to go have a vacation to recharge his batteries, you know. And in some instances get amped up. Yeah, get amped up, you know. People would drink coffee and they would say, this is my morning battery acid. And so there's a huge number of these metaphors. Uh, so, David, when these metaphors start popping, does that mean we've simply completely naturalized uh, what was once a very almost frightening technology? Or, or have we simply pushed some of those fears to the deeper recesses of our minds? Well, that's a very interesting question. So with electricity, I think it is true that we're, in a sense, naturalizing the technology. We're, we're identifying with it. We're taking on its characteristics or what we think of as its characteristics but you're also correct, I think, to see that, well, there's, there can be some fears. I mean, electricity's got some scary properties, so it's not all to the good. It's the same thing when we talk about the mind uh, and in terms of the computer, which is, by the way, interesting. It's, it's all the mind. Electricity is much more the body. But there is always the 
in a sense, the incorporation of that technology into us incorporates also some of those fears, as well as some of the excitement and the hopes. David Nye is a professor of American Studies and the History of Technology at the University of Southern Denmark. He's the author of many books, including American Technological Sublime. As a young journalist in New York City, Judith Shulovitz was always on the go, always on the move, always on. Everything seemed to be about work one way or another. Um, I worked often on weekends. When I socialized, I socialized with people from work because I was in New York. You know, if you if you live in a small town, you probably have a wider range of acquaintances. And when you are new to New York, you know your work friends. So when we had brunch, we had brunch and we talked about work and we gossiped about our work colleagues and who was up and who was down. And there was something missing in my life. And one year I had a roommate who'd been a friend of mine in in high school. I went to boarding school and she was the daughter of a Lutheran minister and she went to church. And uh, I said to her, Jane, can I go to church with you? And she said, actually, no, (laughs) I don't think you'd like it. And I, you know, I would feel uncomfortable having you there. But there is a really cool shul. It's very architecturally, it's really beautiful. And it's right down the street, shul is Yiddish for synagogue. And why don't you go there? So I went there and it, it, it just aroused all these feelings. And I sat in the back and I would cry. It was as if there was this sadness that was waiting for a way to come out. And from there, I sort of slowly became part of what's known as a Shabbos or a Sabbath community. And so, years after her moving experience in synagogue, Judith Shulovitz became interested in the history of the Sabbath and what it might mean for us today. She says the Sabbath has a more central place in early American history than you might think. I don't think people realize how much of a role the question of Sunday observance played in the Puritans' departure from England and their Mm. voyage to America. A lot of the issue they had with King James I was over how Sunday was to be observed. For example, there was a big battle over bear baiting, which (laughs) was an activity they felt should not occur on the Sabbath. Um, So they were— the other day it was okay to bait bears, though? I guess so. Elizabethan— Uh, era entertainments. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, that that was one of their big theological disputes. And they came to America in search of a place in which they could, as often has been stated, create a new Jerusalem, a city on a hill. And they wanted to keep their Sabbaths as they wanted to keep them, which was very, very strictly. And what did it actually mean to be that strict? What would life have been like in Puritan America? Well, you would have been required to go to church. You would have spent several hours in church. There was no heating in church. And there was actually somebody who went up and down the rows of the pews and would sort of tap you on the head if you weren't paying attention. (laughs) There was no work allowed. There was no play allowed. There were no fires allowed. So your food would be cold. If you had servants, you would you would read from the Bible to them, and they were required to go to church too. So it was incredibly strict. 
The Puritan style of observance really influenced Sunday laws in America for quite a long time. Ultimately, there were more people keeping the Sabbath in a stricter way than there ever had been, I believe, in the history of the world. But as new technologies emerge that start speeding up daily life, the Sabbath and the Sabbath laws come under increased scrutiny and protest. In the 19th century, there were these battles over Sabbatarianism that were really surprisingly politically charged. I think not in the book, but in my own mind, I I compare it to the battles over abortion. That's how seriously Mm -hmm. people took them. The first of these great battles was over post offices, whether post offices would be open on Sunday or not. That was just this huge sort of culture kampf you know, cultural battle. We wanted our communiques communicated quickly. And those who believed that they should be and that that would improve society, it would pick up the pace of industrialization and commerce and just simply make people's lives better, wanted the post offices open on Sunday. And those who feared that technology would overtake their lives argued against it and overtake their lives and, of course, weaken their religion. On both sides of the Sabbatarian debate, arguments were framed in terms of bringing the country together and protecting worker and immigrant interests in a rapidly changing, industrializing society. Later, there would be these battles over whether libraries and other cultural institutions would be open or not. Often it was the people arguing for opening them were arguing on behalf of workers, having access to culture, self-improvement, workers and immigrants, I should say. The people who were arguing against any weakening of Sabbatarianism were often arguing on behalf of workers and saying, if these restrictions are loosened, then workers will lose their day of rest. Though sporadically enforced, these Sunday closing laws, or blue laws, largely remain on the books throughout much of the first half of the 20th century. As late as 1961, In McGowan versus Maryland, the Supreme Court upheld their constitutionality. There was a decision that was made by Earl Warren and Felix Frankfurter to uphold blue laws. And it's interesting why Frankfurter, who was Jewish, argued for Sunday closing laws, which is what they were. And he said it's because Sunday peace and Sunday rest is, quote, a cultural asset of importance a release from the daily grind, a preserve of mental peace, an opportunity for self-disposition, and that the common good of the public overrode the First Amendment issues. But throughout the second half of the 20th century, the blue laws finally did start to disappear. Sort of there were two forces that led to them being challenged. One was the influx of women into the workforce. Once women were working, they needed both days of the weekend to shop and Mm. do the chores that they were unfortunately still doing by themselves. And the other thing was the advent of the big box store, the chain stores, which had resources with which to lobby state legislatures to get these things struck from the books. Mom and pop Uh stores needed a day off, right? Right. Sunday was good for them. They didn't have the resources to hire help to stay open as late as the chain stores did. So with the advent of Sunday shopping, a lot of mom-and-pop stores went out of business. So these were the forces that took these laws off the book, even though they were only, at that point, being sporadically enforced. And now in 2019, these blue laws are, for the most part, long gone. Still, Judith Shulovitz thinks we would do well to return to a kind of Sabbath. But how can we go about it in our technologically soaked environment? Uh, With great difficulty. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> Obviously, we're not going to return to blue laws, nor would I want to. I think they just raise too many issues, and, and I just think the forces of industry prevent them and technology prevent them. But you could certainly begin in your own life, in your own community, in your own congregation to recognize the benefits of a social time of non-work. Sort of I say it's, it's about structured non-work time. So everybody's not working at the same time as you. And now it's staying off your phone and staying off your computer. Everybody's not doing that at the same time as you, which means that there's, there are people around with whom to do things together. This could be secular then. Yeah, it is. I mean, that's, that's you know, Frankfurter said it is a secular asset. It need not be religious. I mean, I found it through religion, but it need not be religious. There are people who are now talking about the technological Sabbath and how important it is to have one day a week where they just put their electronics away and try to remember what it was like to read books and go outside and play sports. So I guess the moral here is that the Sabbath is what you make it right, is that a day of stepping away from the usual routines and demands is a great idea, but you sort of need to do it intentionally and, if possible, with a sense of joy and gratitude. Uh, with one caveat, which is uh -huh. that that you has to be plural. Right. In other words, it's not what you personally make it. It's what right. you, as you with a group of others, make it and how you define a community through it. Because it is, it, it creates a space in time in which to forge bonds, social mm -hmm. bonds, mm -hmm. civic bonds, communal bonds, because, you know, when you're focused on your work, you're fo focused on getting ahead, and maybe you're working with a team, but it's really not a fully social experience and not a, an experience in which other aspects of yourself can come out. I feel that if you try to do it by yourself, it's going to be a very lonely experience. Judith Shulevitz is a journalist, cultural critic, and author of The Sabbath World, Glimpses of a Different Order of Time. From 1978 to 1995, Ted Kaczynski, better known as the Unabomber, was the most wanted criminal in America. His reign of terror finally came to an end after evading the FBI for almost 18 years when his own brother turned him in to the police. A promising young University of California at Berkeley math professor turned bread-baking backwoods hermit was in Helena's jail Thursday night while agents searched his Montana mountain shack for proof he is the anti-technology serial killer called the Unabomber. About 20 agents returned to the tar paper shack Thursday to seek evidence that Theodore John Kaczynski, 53, carried out a nearly 18-year string of bombings around the country, including five in Northern California, that killed three and injured 23. After the Unabomber's arrest, the country breathed a collective sigh of relief. But many were left with the same burning question. How did Kaczynski go from promising math professor to anti-technology terrorist? 
Scholar Stephen Jones says it might have something to do with an experiment he participated in as a student at Harvard. It's been suggested, in fact, that his that some of his troubles, his attitude toward technology may have its roots in experience he had at Harvard. He was part of an experiment there on undergraduates that's now widely viewed as, as unethical and, and cruel, uh, where the students were subjected to all kinds of uh, verbal abuse and, and uh, had to write essays and then have them critiqued in public and so on over the course mm. of, of many months often without knowing the details of, of what was going on in the experiment. This is between 1959 and 1962, so a, a long ways back. But in general, I think you're right that he's a product of that post-war, Cold War era. And you see signs in the so-called manifesto of his interest in psychology and particularly behaviorism. And I think that there is a sense in which his, maybe his experiences at Harvard shaped his later rhetoric. Kaczynski goes on to graduate from Harvard and continues his studies at the University of Michigan, eventually becoming a math professor at Berkeley in 1967. A few years later, he quits his career in academia and withdraws from society to a remote cabin in Montana. He pretty soon begins to build these handmade bombs, symbolically made of wood, and then inscribed often with FC, which apparently stood for Freedom Club. So that's, this becomes his signature. And he delivers some by hand. He posts a number of others and then and writes. You know, he has a typewriter in his cabin, and he writes a number of things, including the document that led to his arrest, uh, which was called by the, by the press and by the FBI, the Unabomber Manifesto. There's obviously a great distance between withdrawing from one's career, moving into a cabin, buying a typewriter, and becoming someone who's actively building bombs. That's right. What's your sense about where this transition happened and who he chose to target? You know, I, ultimately, I don't know. I think that the decision to commit that kind of violence is mystery whenever it happens, that kind of, which is sometimes glibly referred to as radicalization, that covers a lot of territory, actually, psychologically and personally, I think, in, in people's lives. But it, what we do know is that the, his targets were people who were in contact with or promoting what he saw as technological society from different angles. So academics and research, but also, for instance, sometimes people just in, in retail stores who were selling personal computers. And then he did have a kind of uh, vendetta against the press, which, you know, to, to rings ominously today. He, re he referred to as, you know, the propaganda machine and suggested this was another a big piece in the puzzle of the problem with, with technological society. One year before his arrest, the Unabomber publishes Industrial Society and Its Future, a radical manifesto that reflected a broader anti-technology trend popularized by the neo-Luddites in the 1990s. But to truly understand the manifesto, Jones says it's crucial to note the difference between the historical Luddites of the 19th century in Britain and neo-Luddism, a movement that formed in America much later. The original Luddites, you know, were textile workers mostly. They were in these proto-unions that were descended from the guilds, and they were very much interested in very specific kinds of machinery and in restricting the use of those because they were putting them out of work. So they were a labor movement. They were focused on right. economic justice. And they were themselves technologists. That is, they were machinists. They used machines in their work all the time. They just wanted to use their machines, not the mm -hmm. newfangled labor-saving devices that the owners were bringing in. So that's very, very different from 
the neo-Luddites that really surfaced and, and made a big splash in the 1990s in this country. Were they not workers like the originals? Yeah, often they were white-collar workers or academics, intellectuals. They were people who were interested in a kind of individualized uh, lifestyle Luddism or a kind of anti-capitalist movement in some cases or anti-globalization movement that had a kind of neo-Luddite side to it. Sometimes they were eco-activists who saw in the Luddites a kind of historical antecedent, although I think that's a distortion of the original Luddites. Although not affiliated with the movement in any official capacity, the Unabomber's manifesto is tinged with neo-Luddite themes. These include technology and its adverse relationship to personal psychology, as well as technology as a kind of Frankenstein, a human creation that has become both malevolent and out of control. For me, it epitomizes the neo-Luddism of the 1990s in a couple of ways, in, in its focus on personal psychology and uh, making the rejection of technology an almost a kind of spiritual decision, a personal decision. Mm. But also, the manifesto is about a generalized psychological problem, you know, a kind of malaise. It has to do with things like the lack of self-esteem, oddly enough. Mm. And he attributes a lot of this especially to leftists. There's this whole section of the manifesto attacking what he calls leftism and political correctness which he sees as an impediment to the coming revolution. And then the, the other way that it, that it seems to me to epitomize the neo-Luddism of its time is its focus on technology as something abstract, the notion that there's a kind of force outside of humanity that has taken on a life of its own uh, that is, mm-hmm. you know, is out to get us even though we made it and over which we have no more control is a, is a very sort of modern idea, and that's emphasized throughout. For me, part of what's problematic about that is it suggests a kind of relinquishing of our, our responsibility, our authority over what it is we've made, including the messes that we've made of the ecology, for mm-hmm, instance. Mm-hmm. Um, so here, here in the midst of the Anthropocene, you know, it's, we're all cursed with what technology has wrought, but we're all responsible for it and, and the danger of a kind of a monster of technology with a capital T is that it externalizes that and makes it no longer a human problem but something uh, that we have no control over. So besides being abstract, the other thing is that he suggests that that technology is is ubiquitous, Mm -hmm. that it's everywhere, it permeates the system, it's the basis for the entire modern system of society. And he uses this to argue, for example, that you can't relinquish just part of it. You can't separate the good technology from the bad technology. So the entire system is corrupt and has to be taken down. So this is a fascinating set of conclusions. I mean, this idea that technology is going to, in effect, destroy humankind, that it is a a monster out of control. I mean, I, I, I certainly see your point about within the arguments there being a certain kind of recklessness about whether you can just let go of the wheel, so to speak. Um, but there are, there are a lot of other pieces of American popular culture that are making these kinds of arguments. You think of a film like The Terminator or any of the yes. dystopic films like Mad Max, you know, The Matrix. Yes. I mean, this yes. is an argument that's actually quite widespread. Absolutely. In fact, I think that that's, that is neo-Luddism and that it's extremely widespread, although the term's not as popular as it was in the 1990s. Um, and that, you know, after 1945, 
the sense that that technology is bigger than we can handle mm-hmm. is a perfectly legitimate initial response uh, to what you know to what we have made to what humans have have unleashed and in popular culture you see all sorts of uh, versions of this a journalist recently attempted to cut all the major platforms out of her life tried to perform an experiment where she eliminated <laughs> Facebook and Google and, and right. Amazon and failed. You know, she admits that it, it's impossible uh, really to go on the kind of lifestyle she had in any way by doing that. And and, of, and we're all becoming a little more sensitive, I think, in recent years to the dangers of ubiquitous surveillance, of big data. But right. that's precisely the point. It's a question of who controls that data, to what ends and what interests are being served uh, by these technologies and those are the the specific important questions that are elided or that or that are overshadowed by a kind of neo luddite ideology of ubiquitous technology right that's everywhere right. And, right. and impossible to combat except by the destruction of civilization now now you've written in your own work that there's an inherent relation between technology and terror thinking about fears of cyber terrorism or runaway technological growth and such how might the neo-Luddites and the Unabomber be an expression of that linkage? Yeah, I mean, I think in a, in, a, in a very precise way, it's clear that what Kaczynski was involved in was a campaign of terror. Mm. Uh, the idea was that it's not – the violence itself is a part of it, but the violence is part of a kind of campaign that's ideological and that's aimed at – producing a certain affective response in the public. You know, you, you terrorize because of the threat of violence, not just because of the acts of violence, as we all well know. So there is a kind of a sense that, that if technology really is an autonomous and inhuman force that permeates every aspect of modern society, then what's needed to respond to it is a counter-conspiracy of sorts. You have to have a kind of all-pervasive kind of counter-movement. And in some ways, it doesn't matter who you bomb if they're even tangentially connected to the technological society, then this is this can be spun as a, a kind of just cause. Uh, once it's been, it's been made total and ubiquitous and autonomous. So, terror is one kind of response to being terrified of this, of these forces. I think of technology, um, among others. Stephen Jones is the DeBartolo Chair in Liberal Arts and Professor of Digital Humanities at the University of South Florida. He's the author of Against Technology, From Luddites to Neo-Luddism. That's going to do it for us today. And you can keep the conversation going online by sending an email to backstory at virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, at Backstory Radio. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. Backstory is produced at Virginia Humanities. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, the Johns Hopkins University, and the National Endowment for the Humanities. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the National Endowment for the Humanities. 
Additional support is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment. Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus of the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Wyndham for Virginia Humanities.